0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Blaney's Podcast. This afternoon, we have a special guest, Mr. William Anderson, or as we call him, Bill, the chair of the Employment and Labor Group. Good afternoon, Bill. Hi, Lou. Bill, um, you're an employment and labor lawyer. What got you into this? Well, I was a corporate lawyer 20 years ago,
1: and... At that time, the whole area of employment law was starting to explode, and uh, more and more of my practice got uh, directed uh, to employment law, and then I just made the transition.
0: So now you're doing both ends of the spectrum, both employment and labor law. What exactly is the difference between those two? So
1: the difference is that employment law deals with individuals and their contracts um, with the employer, and labor law deals with unions and a contract, a collective agreement between the employer and the union on behalf of all of the employees that are in the bargaining unit.
0: So today in our podcast, we'll focus on the employment part of your practice, and uh, let me get you to, uh, I guess, one of your typical phone calls. You get a phone call from the vice president of human resources, totally frustrated with the performance of one of his employees, calls you up and says, Bill, I need to get rid of this guy. I need to do something. What do you tell him?
1: Well, you can get rid of someone at any time for virtually any reason, unless it's a contravention of the Employment Standards Act or the Human Rights Code or some other piece of legislation that specifically says you can't terminate someone for this reason. So the conversation starts with, well, of course you can terminate the person if you provide them with reasonable notice, but really what's the underlying problem? And sometimes you can actually help assist with a performance improvement plan or some type of way to save the relationship on a go-forward basis and if you can't then you just provide advice about here's how you properly terminate the person.
0: Now we hear words that have been used to uh, I guess address the issue of termination termination of course is one of them we also hear about the word severance we hear the word layoff are there differences between those terms?
1: Yeah there did there are real differences between those terms as i understand the most lay people don't understand the difference that they use those terms interchangeably to just to mean at the end of the relationship what do you have to pay the employee to get rid of them but if we back up for one second the real obligation of an employer is to provide advance notice of the termination of someone's employment to give them an opportunity to get their affairs in order and to transition to some type of comparable employment so that they don't have to be on EI or they don't have to be unemployed for a period of time without any source of income. So the first obligation on the employer is to provide some type of advance notice and if they don't want to give advance notice to the employee then they have to provide them with some kind of a payment, either a termination, payment or a severance payment in order to transition that person the other term that you used was a layoff and to my mind a layoff is something that typically is temporary and the the employee and the employer expect that the relationship will continue after either the business changes um, or some other sort of external circumstances allow the employee to come back to work however in most common law cases, unless there's a contractual right to lay someone off, if an employer unilaterally lays someone off, they've effectively terminated them, and an employee can take that position.
0: Well, Let's talk about one of the terms you've just, know, you've just used, which is the contractual right. Is there, a con- is there always a contract between an employer and an employee?
1: There is always an implied contract between an employer and an employee. So over the course of time, certain rules or implied contractual terms have been developed for the relationship between the two. And what you typically want to do, usually if you're an employer, but oftentimes also if you're an employee, is to try to commit those contractual terms as understood and agreed to by you in writing in either a letter agreement or a a contract of employment.
0: Now typically we hear of a package being given to an employee. What would we see in one of those packages?
1: So when you give someone a package, what you really mean is you're going to give the person a letter that's going to terminate their employment, it's going to confirm that you're going to pay the employee all of their accrued wages and vacation pay up to the point of termination, and then you're going to provide them with some type of assistance on a go-forward basis to try to transition them to another job.
0: How do we know uh, if we're representing or if you're representing an employer what the right amount of pay in lieu of notice would be?
1: Well, the first place you look is a contract of employment if you've taken the opportunity to do that at the front end of the relationship. And then it's easy. You just go back to your filing cabinet, you pull a piece of paper out, you read it, and you say, this is what we agreed to then, so this is what we're going to do now. If you haven't done that, then you have to go to either the Employment Standards Act, if you're in Ontario and you're provincially regulated, or whatever the applicable statutory um legislation is determine what the minimum statutory requirements are and it's usually formula driven so you calculate that amount as the minimum amount and then you look at what's referred to as common law notice and that's judge made notice which comes out of our case law that says that particular employee in those circumstances is probably going to be awarded at trial a certain amount of notice and most employment lawyers have enough experience to know basically what the range is for common-law notice.
0: So when you give that number as part of your package and you're acting for the employer do you put the number at a level where you know there'll be some negotiation back and forth and so there's some wiggle room on the employer side?
1: employers have different strategies that they evoke some employers will say this is our offer it's fair in the circumstances and we're not going to deviate from it and other employers will say I know that the employee is going to retain counsel I know that they're going to come back and ask for more money so why would I play my best cards now why don't I hold off and then I'll have something to give later on but it really depends upon what the employer's history is and what their strategy is with respect to these situations
0: would there ever be circumstances in which the employer would have to pay nothing to his employee upon termination?
1: Yeah, in the context of the employee either quitting um, or if the employee gives cause or just cause to the employer to terminate the employment relationship. And just cause is something that is often talked about but very rarely ever accomplished um, in a termination situation. It really has to be gross misconduct, gross neglect of duty by the employee in order to justify a summary termination without any notice or payment in lieu of notice.
0: So a bad performance would not be enough to terminate an employee for just cause?
1: 99 times out of 100, I would agree that it's not going to be enough. Even if you've warned the person, even if you put them on a performance improvement plan, it's not going to be enough to to for a judge to justify a summary termination there are circumstances where the employee objectively refuses to reach certain levels which they ought to reach in terms of their performance and a judge will say look you brought this upon yourself but it's very very uncommon
0: i know oftentimes in employment circumstances the employer gives a new employee a employee manual will contain a number of policies uh, would a breach of one of those policies constitute grounds for a uh, wrongful dismissal? Yeah. I'm Har- sorry, uh, uh, just cause, rather? Yeah. Hardly ever.
1: Um, the employee manual is something that doesn't technically speaking form part of the contract between the employer and the employee because it's unilaterally imposed by the employer the employee doesn't negotiate those terms the employer hands them a book and says these are the rules of our workplace we would like you to review them we would like you to adhere to them and as long as they're reasonable and as long as the employer can establish that they came to the attention of the employee they can rely upon them down the road but You really do have to repeat that you are relying upon those uh, policies, bring them to the attention of the employee, and then if there's a repeated failure to adhere to them, then maybe you give yourself uh, an argument that there's just cause.
0: We often hear of the term wrongful dismissal. Uh, Perhaps you could clarify what wrongful, I'm sorry, uh, what constructive dismissal is.
1: Yeah, let me answer both of those because I think you're also right to start with the concept of wrongful dismissal and what that means because Oftentimes, employees will come forward and they will feel like they're aggrieved that they shouldn't have been terminated, that the employer had no right to terminate them. And of course, the starting point is an employer does have the right to terminate the employment relationship if they provide reasonable notice. So they can be wrong about their decision. They can be making a mistake about whether or not they should be terminating the employee. But as long as they comply with their contractual obligation to provide payment in lieu of reasonable Notice or notice, then it's not wrongful. So, wrongful really just means a breach of the contract. Constructive dismissal is similar to that, except that the employer doesn't actually terminate the relationship expressly. What they do is they make a unilateral and material change to the terms and conditions of that employee's employment. So for example, if you make $10 an hour and you come in the next day and your employer says today you're making $5 an hour on a go-forward basis, that's a pretty significant change to the relationship. And the employee can say, you can't unilaterally do that. It's tantamount to just terminating my employment and the employee walks out and says, I'm going to sue you for wrongful dismissal.
0: So then we'd have to be very careful both as a particular as an employee to take the position that they've been constructively dismissed.
1: Yeah, the problem is is that there's never black and white in a constructive dismissal. It's always nuanced about whether or not the changes are material. So I gave you an example where the employee loses 50% of his income. More commonly what happens is there's a demotion in a position, there's new reporting structures, someone has moved their office to an office that they don't believe is as uh, senior or they don't believe is as uh, central to the the function of the uh, employer's business and they complain about that and the employer's response is that this is all part of the ongoing business and we're entitled to make these changes we have to be able to adapt to the business needs and if you don't like it you can quit the person does quit and then they sue for constructive dismissal and they're either gonna get damages that would be the same damages they got if they actually got fired or they get nothing because if you lose in a constructive dismissal lawsuit you get no damages you end up paying for your own lawyer and you end up paying for the employers uh, lawyer in certain circumstances so it's a very risky lawsuit.
0: Let me take you back to the package for a moment and let's talk about some of the details that are part of the package but are important details for the employee and that is the health benefits how long does the health benefits generally continue in a package
1: your health benefits should continue for the entirety of the notice period so the obligation of the employer is to if you don't provide notice you have to provide all the remuneration the employee would have received during the notice period so all their salary their benefits leases anything that they would have enjoyed as a personal benefit they should be entitled to as payment in lieu of notice. The difficulty is that some benefit providers, the insurance companies, don't allow benefits to continue for the duration of the notice period when someone isn't actively at work. The problem is is that there's a material change of risk. If someone's not going to work and instead they're climbing mountains then of course the risk associated with them hurting themselves and going on disability insurance is greater so insurance providers say we're not going to cover the person during that period And then you have a conflict between the employee, the employer, and the insurance company that has to get resolved.
0: Another uh, uh, detail uh, that is of great importance to an employee is the letter of reference, um, which they either receive or want to receive as part of their package. What should an employer look at and think about before they give one of those letters of reference?
1: More often than not, an employer should be giving a letter of reference to an employee. They should be doing whatever they can reasonably do to try to help the person find another job. In the old days, employers would say it's our corporate policy that we don't provide letters of reference. Most of them did um, in circumstances where it suited their interests. But their policy was we don't do it. That's now changing because judges have said, why would you not give the person a letter of reference to try to help? them. Say something positive about what they do well, don't comment about things necessarily that they don't do well, and see whether or not the person can move forward into another job and prove themselves there. The difficulty is that sometimes if an employee has been so horrific that the employer is concerned that they might be misrepresenting the employers, the employees skills and abilities, either by an act of stating that they're good at something when they're not, or or by omission, if they fail to say that the person's no good at, it, at a particular part of a job. That type of concern is probably overstated. There are very few lawsuits where an employer has sued a former employer and said, had we known that this person wasn't very good, uh, we never would have hired them and we blame you for that former employer.
0: Well, thank you, Bill. I think what we've learned from this is that uh, this is an area fraught with uh, dangers if you make the wrong decision, and certainly an area where you need to speak to a good lawyer. And so with that in mind, Bill, perhaps you can tell our listeners where they can get a hold of you if they want to contact you.
1: Well, I'm here at Blaney's at 416-593-3901, and uh, my email is wanderson, all one word, at
0: blaney.com. Thank you, Bill, for this. We appreciate it. Next on Blaney's Briefs, we'll hear from Vishna Jovanovic on the Free Men on the Lands group who believe themselves to be exempt from Canada's rule of law. And in particular, Vishna will talk about the case of Meads versus Meads.
2: Let's say you've been caught doing one or all of the following. You've breached probation, assaulted a police officer, not paid child support, evaded paying your taxes and your creditors. Is the only sensible next step to hire a good lawyer? Not if you consider yourself to be a free man, or in some cases, free woman on the land. Over the past decade or so, the courts and police have increasingly dealt with a strange movement of people who think that they can evade their legal and societal obligations by claiming that Canadian law does not apply to them. You may think, how many people actually believe that this works? Surprisingly, The Law Society of British Columbia estimated last year that about 30,000 Canadians do. A frustrated Alberta judge came across so many individuals purporting to be freemen that he issued a 183-page decision in a case called Meads v. Meads, refuting this entire movement and their tactics. This decision came about as a result of divorce proceedings between a couple. At its most basic level, the husband, Mr. Meads, felt that he should no longer have to pay child support and that his ex-wife had already gotten more than her fair share of the matrimonial property. In his decision, Justice Rook coined the term Organized Pseudo-Legal Commercial Argument Litigant and stated that these types of litigants share one critical characteristic. They will only honor state, regulatory, contract, family, fiduciary, equitable, and criminal obligations if they feel like it. And typically they don't. Justice Rook then went on to dispel every argument advanced by Mr. Meads and by similar litigants. He concluded that the OPCA arguments he has advanced have no effect or meaning in Canadian law. They offer Mr. Meade no rights, no indemnities, and certainly not a pot of gold or silver to call his own. Despite Justice Rook's comprehensive judgment, freemen keep on showing up in our courts. As of yet, however, there is not a single instance where the Freeman strategy has worked. Instead of getting away without paying child support, the more common outcome is being saddled with the full brunt of the other party's costs.